the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, one really big announcement about the show before we get to today's interview is I'm going to do a second season of the show. So this is going to be the penultimate episode of season one. And then in the final episode, I'm going to do just like an editorial podcast where I give a review of everything. I answer some of the audience questions that I didn't get round to in the Q&A. And I give a preview of everything we're going to do in season two, which is I, as I record this, have just done a batch of interviews with some really, really great people. And I'm going to preview for the, all of that for you in the next episode. You still subscribe the same way on iTunes or followers on Twitter. None of that's changing. But I'm going to make a few cosmetic changes, and it's just going to mark a clean break for the next big batch of interviews that I'm doing that I'll be releasing over, probably over the rest of 2018. I think the second season will take us to the close of the year, which is kind of an exciting thought. So more on that in the next episode, and also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to to get the updates. For today's guest, though, I will be talking with Professor John Skorupski. John Skorupski is a British philosopher whose main interests are epistemology, ethics, moral philosophy, political philosophy, and 19th and 20th century philosophy. He is best known for his work on John Stuart Mill, who, if you're a fan of the podcast, you'll know is probably my favourite philosopher and certainly the figure in the canon who I think is closest to being ethically correct, if we're allowed to say such a thing. Um, Professor Skorupski is currently the Professor of Moral Philosophy at the University of St Andrews. His books include Symbols and Theory, John Stuart Mill, English, English Language Philosophy, 1750 to 1945, Virtue and Taste, The Cambridge Companions to Philosophy, John Stuart Mill, Ethical Explorations, Why Read Mill Today, which I would recommend as the best introductory secondary text to Mill. It's really short, it's really accessible, but it's really good. So I would totally recommend that work. And most recently, The Domain of Reasons. So it was a real pleasure to talk about my favourite philosopher with one of the world's, arguably the world's expert on him. It's been such a privilege to talk to all of the really amazing, intelligent, interesting and inspiring people that um, I've been able to talk to over season one. I'm it's it's been so fun, and I'll, I'll I'll give you some of my closing thoughts on those conversations and what I've learned and how I've grown from this experience in our final episode. For today, though, I want to get straight to today's discussion on the Liberty Principle. joined today by the author of Why Read Mill Today, John Skorupski. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Great. So I've been wanting to talk about Mill on the podcast for a while, and specifically I want to talk about his contemporary relevance. So uh, who, who better to talk to than the author of Why Read Mill Today, which is a wonderful little introduction that I will link to when this goes up. Before we get into any of that, um, for listeners who might or might not be familiar with you, um, how do you think about what you do and the issues you, you work on? If someone asks you, what do you do? How do you, how do you respond to that? <laughs> Usually with some trepidation. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, I think of myself as working in not just political philosophy, in fact, not centrally in political philosophy, but in moral philosophy, more broadly understood, and also in epistemology, which I think for a variety of reasons, you have to be interested in 
epistemology if you're interested in moral philosophy. But So my field is that sort of field, and my last book covered that sort of field pretty generally. Okay, cool. And for those of us who, or those listeners who didn't do a philosophy degree, epistemology, if I'm getting this right, right is is the theory of knowledge. It's 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 what what would what? How do we know that we know things? What counts as knowing? Yes, right. Which turns out to be kind of a, a deep question, as it happens. Very deep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Soon start thinking, how on earth do I avoid skepticism? You know, how do I know there's a table here? All that stuff. Yes, sort of matrix philosophy, as it were. Right, exactly. Before, before we descend down that rabbit hole, though, um, I did bring you on that's to talk not, about um, Mill. So you have a book entitled Why Read Mill Today? This mm. seems like a reasonable question to start the interview mm. with. Who is Mill and why might we want to read him today? Well, Mill, John Stuart Mill, was a 19th century philosopher... Um, writer more generally, and political activist. He was born in 1806. He died in 1873. He served in Parliament for some years in the 1860s. And there his biggest contribution, according to, him, according to himself in his autobiography, was that he almost got women the vote in the 1860s, which is impressive because they then didn't get the vote till quite a way later, 50 or so years later. Um, so that was one thing that he did, and he was proud of that. Um, he also had a very interesting childhood. Uh, he was the son of a man called James Mill, who was an associate of Jeremy Bentham, the great utilitarian, and who had theories about educating children which he tried out on John Stewart. And um, I think John Stewart, although he got a kind of turbo-boosted education, a Greek at the age of three, that kind of thing, he felt afterwards pretty kind of sad and wistful about what he'd missed as a child. Um, and that is a famous part of Mill's autobiography, which is a very short book and regarded as one of the classics of the 19th century. So philosopher, political activist, um, famous background, perhaps that sums him up to, to some extent. Yeah, I mean, we're going to focus on, on liberty today, but the, autobiog the autobiography is wonderful, as is the subjection of women, which you yes. it's just a wonderfully rhetorically powerful work. Yes. Um, starting, though, with... Uh, on liberty, the single idea Mill is probably, even if people don't really know all of his works, they anyone who's done any sort of philosophy degree will have heard of the liberty principle. Yeah. What is that in the simplest terms? <laughs> well, um, so the problem, of course, is putting it in the simplest terms. The way Mill approaches it is that he does do that. He gives you a whole variety of very, uh, you know, formulations of it, which have puzzled people ever since. And then he has a whole book sort of expanding and qualifying it. The simplest version that people usually use is they say, well, the, the Mill principle, which they often call the harm principle, um, is the principle that you mustn't stop people from doing anything they feel like doing unless it's liable to harm others. But then, like you say, although that's the simplest principle, it's actually kind of misleading because then the question just becomes, what do you mean by harm, right? Exactly. And then we go down that route, you know, and that can go on forever because nowadays, unlike Mill when he was writing for a, a kind of intelligent public, you know, lots of people bought the book. Nowadays, we do philosophy academically, and we try and define the word harm. That turns out to be very difficult to define. Um, and once you've defined it, it turns out not to meet all the things that Mill wants to do with the liberty principle. And so you're in trouble. I'll give you an example. Um, take the question of whether people can be compelled to act on juries. So actually, if I remember rightly, that's one of Mill's examples. Well, are you harming anybody if you refuse to act on a jury? Um, what he says is that people he would, can be... He would want to say that you are, right? 
No, what he says, well, you know, he might well want to say that mm. if you asked him, but he doesn't say it okay. in the essay on liberty. Uh, what he says is he says, look, I've explained to you this principle up to a point now, but now I want to make some further explanations of what it involves. So, for example, I'm not trying to rule out the idea that people have certain obligations to society, such as serving on a jury if asked to do so. He doesn't say, and that's because they're harming anybody if they don't. And that would be a little bit stretching it, wouldn't it? I mean, who do I harm exactly by my personal decision not to act on a jury? So what he says is, no, there are certain basic political obligations that we can insist people have. And he bases that on the idea that um, you're acting unfairly if you opt out. Right. And then there is sort of like a sense in which the liberty principle only makes sense if you have a reasonably a reasonably sort of developed, advanced nation-state in which to have it operating. So it doesn't... Oh, yes, yes, it, it, no only, it, it only kicks in at a certain point. And so mm. I guess that would tie into that, right, is that... You, you you have to do enough for the state to exist in the first place. The liberty principle wouldn't make sense in an anarchic state, for instance. Yes, prior to that, people can only hope for an Akbar or a Charlemagne, to quote. In other words, a benevolent dictator. So <laughs> if, if, if harm is, is something of a misnomer, because it just sort of pushes the, the philosophical can down the road, as it were, mm. could you think of another way of summarising the general normative thrust upon liberty is there a, is there a formulation alternate to mills or a, a set of themes that you could you could you could summarize it as well as i say um mill actually proceeds by first of all giving you a whole variety of formulations right at the very beginning right. of which the harm one is one right. the harm version is one of them um but what he's trying to do is to get you to see it from a variety of angles, to get, as it were, a grip on what the intention is as against a kind of formula that you apply in a, like a lawyer. But I think that possibly you captured the most important aspects with a sort of inelegant um, this or that or that kind of, you know, disjunctive formulation. So I think harm is one of them. Obviously, if your action is liable to harm others, it can be, it, it may be appropriate to stop it. Although one needs to, to emphasize the may, I'll come back to that. I think a second thing is the one I've just been talking about, that you may be compelled to do certain minimal obligations to society, you know, like appearing on a jury. And a third one, which has caused an awful lot of controversy and, in my opinion, misunderstanding, is that you may be asked to refrain from behavior that's bad manners in a public space. But then excluding, um, what's it, offenses against decency in public places, excluding right. the demands the state can put on you to, to maintain itself and maintain a state, and excluding, like, that there are sort of duties of care towards others. Uh, Peter Singer's rescuing a child in a shallow right. pond seems to come to yes. mind. But excluding all of that, in your own home or, like, in your own private space, he does want to carve out a quite deep public-private divide. He wants to say, your plan, your way of life, really, you can be advised, but you can't you can't really be refrained or compelled from choosing your own what you do for a hobby, choosing your own what you do for work, choosing your own life, essentially, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, he's, you know, exhibit A as far as that kind of liberalism is concerned. I mean, he's very big on that, of course. But one distinction that you can draw between both contemporary philosophical liberalism, I'm thinking of, for instance, John Rawls, or even something like libertarianism or neoliberalism, is this is not an abstract set of rules. This is not the idea that the state should be neutral. This is all very much based on a conception of the human good and human flourishing. And yes. the centre of the ethical bullseye for Mill is the idea of human 
development. I mean, tell me if you disagree with that summary and if you have anything to build on. No, it. I don't. I don't. I don't at all. No. Um, both parts of what you said are true. I mean, he needs to base the liberty principle on something like the principle of utility, i.e. what's best for human beings considered impartially and in general. That part is true. And also, in Chapter 3 of the essay on liberty, he has this very eloquent defense of the idea that what's really good for you is your self-development. Not development by others, but you do it, and you develop yourself in the way that's best for you. Now, we could discuss whether that's not a bit sentimental and unrealistic, but it's definitely his view. I, I don't see it as a purely individualist option. Well, you're not giving him a wrong read. Do you, do, you think that's, do you think that's the right summation of it, or is there anything you'd well, add to it's, that? It's, I mean, uh, he is a utilitarian. Utilitarians are impartial individualists. They think mm. that everybody counts equally, and nothing counts ultimately other than the well-being of individuals. Mm. So they're individualists in that sense. They're not theorists of self-interest. They're not, um, you know, they're not anti-cooperation. They're not libertarians who think all that matters is rights. They, their ultimate basis is what contributes to the well-being of human individuals, considering all human individuals equally. Yeah. Just they to can, cash in on this distinction, because I think particularly in American political discourse, we often conflate libertarian and classical liberal. And for some classical liberals, that might be accurate, but it's not for me. Libertarian is just, no, a, no. is just a hard line. The government can't mess with you or your property. This is a much richer notion of human flourishing yeah. and social yeah. cooperation and so on. Yeah, right? actually, my own view about the term philosophical liberal, at least applied in, in the 19th century, which is when it fits best, is that it's in terms of this thing we've just been talking about, the idea of self-development. So the philosophical liberal or the classical liberal of the 19th century thought that the real case for liberty is ultimately that it helps people to develop themselves and that way brings them, you know, closer to well-being. I mean, that's true of Schiller, it's true of Humboldt, I mean, these are German liberals. Um, and Mill actually picked up a lot of from those people. He was following in their footsteps. Well, he, he quotes Humboldt in On Liberty as saying what is Absolutely. the highest and most harmonious development of his powers yeah. to a complete yeah. and consistent whole. There's some lovely terms of phrase exactly. in this. Um, <laughs> Just before we move on to application, one thing I've always picked up on in Mill's writings, and it's, it's again not unique to Mill, it's there in some of those other thinkers, it's there in slightly later thinkers like Hobhouse and Hobson, is their view of what's truly good about human nature is always expressed through the metaphor of very natural imagery. Human nature is a tree, Mill tells us, that must be allowed yep. to grow and develop itself on all sides according to the inward forces that make it a living thing. And there's this constant contrast of human nature and development as natural and living and organic, mm. as opposed to the things he's opposed to, the, the idea of the despotism of custom, of the idea of an overarching state, is always, is always described as mechanical in contrast to, to the organicism that he sees in human beings. What do you what do you think's going on with that? Because he's not like a Rousseau, we just need to go back to nature type. What, what, what's he doing with that sort of language, do you think? Well, um, the short answer is appealing to the uh, spirit of the age. <laughs> but um, you, you can bear in mind some points about him. For a start, Benthamite utilitarianism was treated by a whole lot of people, like Thomas Carlyle, who was a friend of John Stuart Mill's, with great contempt as mechanical, sawdusty, you know, the sawdusty mill, as Carlyle put it. So uh, he felt that he needed to distance the basic philosoph philosophical idea of utilitarianism from this stereotype of mechanical thinking, you know, or hard times by Dickens, that kind of view of it. And for that purpose, he was really into Coleridge. He wrote these two really very good essays, one on Bentham, one on Coleridge, as the two half-men of their age. You know, you had to combine what was right in Bentham with what was right in Coleridge and get rid of what was wrong in each of them. And Coleridge was very into organic metaphors for personality and society. 
Well, why was he into that? It was the romantic um, discourse, which again, as much as anything, comes from Germany, of you know the state as an organism, the human being as a sort of plant which develops in its own way and mustn't be interfered with. All of that is as much to be found in Goethe or Schiller as it is in Wordsworth or Coleridge. And, of course, Coleridge knew, knew a lot about that because he was very interested in German thought. So put the background of interest in German thought together with the fear of sounding like a dry-as-dust mechanical utilitarian together, and you've got um, the mill of on liberty, who was well aware that lots of intelligent people were thinking in that same sort of way, influenced by Wordsworth, Coleridge, the Romantic tradition. Which does sort of lead to something you alluded to earlier, which is, this is a very demanding, because Mill does not read like the sawdust mill, at least the Mill of On Liberty doesn't, right? No. Um, if anything, he reads to the opposite as a very sort of starry-eyed, almost at times quite naively trusting view of human nature. There's, a, there's, mm. a, there's almost a spiritualism about it, in my view. Like, he, it really does read... Um, there's the quote about the, the human beings who live in the world today are, quote, but starved specimens of what nature can and will produce. It's a very demanding view. Like you said, what about the people who just want to sit and watch Jerry Springer or whatever? Mm. What about the people who... There's such a focus on genius, on eccentricity, and on the, the great minds. What about the people who just... Are you know, and this is not a moral judgment, just, you know, what about the people who just aren't that bright? What about the people who just aren't that ambitious? How do how do they fit into Mill's state? And I don't have a great answer for that. I've always very much admired Mill, but it, it, what about the just below average people? You know what I mm. mean? Like, how does that come into it all? Mm. Well, um, I'm sure that he had moments of idealism about the potential of every human being. He was also extremely realistic about human beings as they were. So the way he could put this together is because he believed in this psychology of the time, according to which you know personality and, and potential are very much products of how you are brought up, of what was called associationist psychology, of having the right associations. And in fact, he was himself supposed to be an experiment in showing that very thing. And so he went around thinking, well, you know, if anybody could be John Stuart Mill, if only they'd had my education. Right. Now, that is very implausible, obviously, and he's not a fool. So that's only one aspect of it. The other aspect is that, well, it is it is pretty straightforward elitism. And it features in On Liberty, which is that one of the main arguments he produces for the liberty principle is that it's going to leave the geniuses free to develop their own famous phrase, experiments of living. And these people will lead the way. They are the, you know, they are the essential elements in making the cake grow. And other people will see that and they've got the ability to follow to lead a better way of living, to follow a better way of living rather than a worse way of living. But there's no doubt that um, he sees that in very elitist terms. You know, there are a few who always provide the moral and aesthetic example, and the many, well, we just have to hope they're good enough to follow. People wouldn't write stuff like that now. I mean, maybe they would, maybe there's some who would, but it, it really is a, no, they a, it's a view that's unapologetically towards you have to think he's imagining some, like, fraction of a percent of mankind, right? Mm. Mm. Yes. But then I've always thought there's actually a sort of, it's not necessarily a popular thing to say, but there is sort of a philosophical justification for that. If you take seriously the idea of higher and lower pleasures, which he cashes out. Exactly, yes. In utilitarianism. That's is, not a very popular distinction either. Yeah. Is if there yeah, are some experiences that are just, you know, if it is better to be Mozart than an oyster, and I think I take that example from Roger Crisp, then it doesn't, the oysters don't matter, the Mozarts do. And that mm. kind of maps onto human society is that if, if higher pleasures are category different, then 
the lower pleasures actually almost kind of fall away, right, in what you're trying to socially promote? Well, almost. I mean, uh, I don't think uh, Mill would say that the oyster's pleasures, if the oyster can be said to have pleasure, are unimportant any more than Bentham would, because Bentham, of course, thought that what matters is do they feel, not do they think. As, uh, and I actually, I, I know that Roger wouldn't think that they were completely unimportant either. But not completely unimportant. You don't want to cause needless suffering. But if you've got the choice between promoting a higher or a lower pleasure, all other things being equal, so it won't affect the other, you're always going to promote the higher, well, according to this view, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite hard to know how Mill would have interpreted that very brief section of utilitarianism when you ask him something like, you know, how many cows can be painfully killed in order to maintain higher pleasure? I very much doubt. I mean, that's the sort of thing that contemporary philosophers think about. I very, I'd be very surprised if Mill had ever spent any time thinking about that. I mean, he was just making a broad remark about how a very important aspect of Pleasure is that the better educated you are and so on, the more you have access to pleasures which less educated people don't have access to. But that does return us to the elitism. I mean, there is. But, but, you know, it's not so much a question of whether you're a pro or against elitism. The question is whether this is correct. Well, so let me just walk out right on a limb and say something that's going to pull sort of my, my, my membership in the modern American left into question is maybe it is correct, at least in broad strokes, because you've got to, I mean, let's just take off the table when we talk elitism, we're discounting, as I think Mill would, elitism based on class or birth or gender or race oh, or anything like that. And I think Mill would agree down the line, including things like race and gender, which weren't common in his yep. time. But we are talking a sort of cognitive elitism, and here would be the defence would be twofold, is firstly, if there is someone who can just feel and have experiences and know things much more deeply than I can, they are more important than me. Like, if someone can... the, the Einsteins of the world are more important than I am, and they are for two reasons. One is the nature of their experiences deeper. And the other is the utilitarian benefit that they're going to have to the world is much greater. And if they're people who are leading more valuable lives, both for themselves and others, is it so wrong that we give them an outsized share of our concern when we're building political and social systems? I realise that will be very controversial, but I think there is an argument there. It would be controversial with Mill. I mean, you've made two points. One is that because they have access to more fulfilling lives, if I can just, you know, thumbnail it in that way, if, because they've got access to more fulfilling lives, therefore they're more important. And the other is because they can create more well-being for other people through their own activities, you know, um, perhaps they're scientists or something, that makes them more important. Well, I think he'd agree with the second, but not with the first. He doesn't, so, he doesn't ever say the first, but you could extrapolate that from a lot of his work. It does follow from some of these principles. Mm-hmm. Well, it follows from the utilitarian principle, and let's do this in terms of happiness, right? That if you're going to get more happiness out of this glass of supremely good burgundy than I am, then you should get it, Right. So um, we shouldn't be tossing a coin as to who gets it. You should get it because you'll enjoy it more. That follows from that. Follow and since development, self-development of in, in, in getting to know what's a good wine and what's a bad wine, you know, by testing lots of it and finding that you know the good, the great Burgundies really are great. Since that gives you more pleasure from drinking a great Burgundy. Then you know the self-development, the self-developed wine taster, should get more wine than the guy who to whom wine means nothing. If you extrapolate that across the whole field, that would apply to art, to poetry, and so on. Um, that's true. That that's. I mean, it's true that that's the implication of Mill's position. 
But no, that, that doesn't land us in a comfortable place. One imagines modern liberals would not be crazy fond of that train of thought, right? Well, yeah, take my silly example of the glass of burgundy. I mean, do you think it should go to the person who's going to enjoy it most? Or do you I think mean, it should go... Here's it the thing, go- though. In, in that specific example, I can totally locate myself in that example is I have a friend who is very into his wines and this type of person who can tell the year and the soil just by drinking it, you know. And <laughs> Does I, he enjoy it? <laughs> I mean, I, won't, I assume, I don't know. I, as Mill would say, am not a competent judge of that experience. I don't know wines that well. I quite like my red wine. But if I've got, you know, two glasses of wine, one is this very sophisticated burgundy and the other is a bog-standard yes. California table wine. Um, there's something called Carlo... <laughs> Rossi in America, which sells for $10 a gallon, and it's not horrible, <laughs> all things considered. Um, well, but if I've got those two glasses of wine, and it's me and my friend here, yeah, I would, I would give him the, the good one, because he's going to get something out of it. Like, the comparative distinction to me, when you get these, like, $100 a thing wines, or $100 a bottle of whiskeys, I don't know, maybe I'm just an ignoramus, I kind of can't tell the difference. So, right. I, yes, actually, in that but situation... You do enjoy- Oh, I enjoy it, but I also enjoy the table wine, you know? Right. So, but I mean, a, a certain kind of egalitarian might say, well, we should toss a coin to, to work out who gets the, this wine. I mean, I think where that instinct... That's a different view to the one you're finding quite plausible. I find it plausible. I think the challenge comes in that, in theory, yes, if you could go by who's really going to enjoy and appreciate that wine. It's not that I never get that wine. It's that, you know, maybe he gets first dips, but... When it comes to actual real social systems, whenever we try and distribute goods on the basis of some sort of, not merit, but but your ability to appreciate them like that, what we'd end up doing is distributing them on the basis of class and wealth and race and gender. And that in reality, it would, it would, if you started to allow people to make distinctions like that, it would just become a tool that would just reinforce, you know, the wealthy white guy who owns a Wall Street firm would say, well, of course, I'm the most cultured one and I deserve the burgundy. That's how it's actually, it would actually map out, right? But philosophically, I mean, I don't know. I, I think the burgundy example hits home for me. I think that kind of makes sense. Yeah, well, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm on Mill's side and apparently on yours. I think, well, assuming you can't sell the glass of burgundy and give the proceeds neither to you nor to the wine connoisseur, but say to a charity, <laughs> let's let's leave that one out. You've only got the two choices, right? You either give it, or I've only got the two choices. I give it to you, or I give it to this chap who I know just really appreciates this wine and and enjoys it. He's not he's not got sick of it. He really enjoys it. Then I give it to that guy definitely. I mean. Uh, with two children, two 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 children of mine, one of them really enjoys, let's say, going to the opera. Well, not the opera. Few children enjoy the opera. Um, one you, of them you, really, you have some cultured children, my friend. <laughs> one of them really wants to do X. I'm not going to come up with any examples. Yet. And the other one gets nothing out of doing X. And X is quite expensive. Then I think I'd be inclined to actually... Um, give it to the one who really enjoys X. But, of course, that's an example that immediately shows you, you know, the other, the other aspects. You know, then, the, uh, so then there's the innate good, then there's the indirect good. There's the other side of the coin, which I started with, which is that if the, the purpose of genius or of eccentricity or of being different and really radically thinking, as you, you, you quoted it, experiments in living, is the idea that we do want to give space and in some sense resources to people of genius because then they're going to find not just like the cure for cancer, but maybe a new way of living your life, a new spiritual or moral truth, which will be of benefit. Exactly so, want. yes. Um, that seems... I mean, we're still in the territory of elitism, but that seems somewhat more intuitive to the moral liberal mind. What do you do? You want to talk about experiments in living? What does Mill have in mind here? What, what does that look like? Well, experiments of living—they, um, I think he doesn't say what they are, but I would guess he'd tell you he'd come up with small-scale socialist experiments because they're ones that he clearly took a great interest in. You know, he wrote about socialism and was very interested in the idea of having it experimentally, exactly like that. Not 
just taking over the country and making it a socialist country, but allowing free scope for various kinds of experiments in socialist living, experiments in you know going off and living a green life as against a, 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 an urban life, that sort of thing. I don't think he had so much the idea of religious prophets coming in, but there's no reason. You know, I, I, officially speaking, so to speak, you ought to say, yeah, that's another experiment of living. You know, Billy Graham is giving you an experiment of living. See whether you like it or not. Well, uh, well that's really interesting, though, because I think when most people think of it in the context of, like, what would this mean today, they think about it in terms of people being allowed to individually lead the sex life that they want or choose to take drugs if they want or do all sorts of well, self-harming but not yeah, other but, harming things. Um, which would be included. But you're also talking about if Mill was around today, he would be really interested in, like, Occupy Wall Street or the people who go off and try to found a nature commune. Or, like, I had a friend who literally built a cabin in the woods and just went off the grid with her husband. You know, he would would want to look at that and say, is there anything we can learn from it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But I, I was simply guessing at the kind of things that he would have had in mind when he wrote in, you know, 1859 or whatever it was. So um, probably drug experiments wouldn't have been major features of his interest. Although, of course, his view on drugs, was, incidentally, would have to be that they could only be criminalized if they cause, if taking drugs causes harm to other people. Does um, it? Does, does it follow, not necessarily what the historical mill thought, but does it just follow from this view of human nature and you know, this argument that we've been outlining does it follow that we would just need to let people take whatever drug they want? Um, it, it would seem to, right? And degrade themselves so long as they weren't harming other people. I'm afraid so, yes. That is, uh, that's the sort of thing that other liberals later in the 19th century picked mill up on. Mm. They wanted to introduce, for example, restrictions on drink, uh, on the hours at which a public house could be open i.e. a place where you can buy a drink, just in case an American is listening to this. Um, so they wanted to introduce those restrictions precisely because they thought that liberalism requires you to stop people from degrading themselves. And that is a, is a line of argument that you could get from that stuff about elitism that we we're just talking about now. You know, if, if the big thing is that you should be trying to improve yourself, develop yourself, and so on. Well, why shouldn't we help you by stopping you from taking drugs and drink? Yeah. That's a line of argument which people put against Mill, but he was definitely not going to give way to it. I think there's two responses Mill could make there, one practical, one theoretical. The, the, the practical is just, just the seriousness of criminalization. Like, criminalization mm-hmm. is just a it, being subject to a criminal sentence is a huge utility loss for someone. So you have to, if you're going to criminalize something, you have to mount an argument of the seriousness of the offense. And Mill might just want to deny that however bad drug use is, that it clears that threshold. But the other argument is more interesting. It's based on elitism. Is Let's just take the example of drugs. There are some people, cognitive elites, who do genuinely, I haven't gone down this route myself, but do genuinely seem to have got something normatively interesting out of um, psychoactive drugs and so on. They, do, they have done these experiments, and it does seem to, they do seem to have got something out of it. But then for every one of those, there's a hundred people who use drugs in a way that's just completely self-debasing. And Mill just seems to want to say that the, the ability of the elites to experiment and to be different and to chart a new course is just more important. Yes, well, you've just put a really cogent question to John Stuart Mill, and the sad fact is that he never considered it. I mean, <laughs> that is a very good question to put. In other words, look, supposing that some of these elitist experiments of living do show us a way, but at the cost of causing harm to other people who think they can follow it, but have just end up degraded druggies, right? So what is your trade-off there? I mean, that's a question that Mill doesn't answer, but a relevant point would be that he doesn't think um, that any time something is going to harm other people, it can be stopped. He just thinks it's got to be true 
It's a necessary, not a sufficient condition. It's got to be true that it's going to harm other people, plus the other things I mentioned, for it to be okay to stop it. Right. And he comes up with lots of examples of things that harm other people where it's not okay to stop it. You know, if you and I take part in a competitive examination, there's only one person who can get the job. And, you know, you're harming me because you're going to get the job by taking part in the examination. Nobody's going to stop you for that reason. So it seems to be, just to sum that up, it's a two-step process to can you ban something. The first step is, does it harm others? Where harm could mean a number of things. But firstly, does it harm others? Yeah. Yes, it harms others. Second question, would it promote overall social welfare to ban it? So, like, it wouldn't in the case of competitive examinations, or one would think or hope, right? Yeah, exactly, yes. So, um, if this experiment of living, done by, you know, Dr. Joe Bloggs, who's really into uh, unusual esoteric drugs, turns out to give extraordinary transcendental experiences to, to the few, and drive quite a few other people into into just being addicts who get nothing out of it at all. If that's the situation, then I think Mill would be committed to say, well, it's a trade-off, and I've got to consider how much harm is caused and how much elevation of human personality is caused. The other side... Yeah, go ahead. That's a very good 20th century question, you know, because we've had lots of experience of this sort of thing. Well, it's the 21st century now, but it was a very good 20th century question. Whereas in 19th century, people just weren't thinking in these terms of grey on grey. There's there's another side. He almost seems to use the word eccentricity synonymously with genius. He says, I insist emphatically on the importance of being eccentric. Um, And that seems to have a huge place in his theory. He doesn't just say different or original, he says eccentric. Do you think there's anything to his use of that word? Because he says it a lot. It seems to mean something to him. Yeah, well, that's another interesting question. I think I'd want to take time off to look at the texts again. My memory of it is that um, he means something like what would be taken to be eccentric or what act or if you like what is sociologically speaking eccentric i.e it doesn't fit in with the way most people act and what they find to be conventionally expected you know um so i don't know that he's saying look there are these things that are genuinely eccentric and i'm all in favor of them i think he may be saying well there are these things which people find eccentric and in the sense of conventional opinion, they are eccentric, but they shouldn't be banned for just that reason. Yeah, so there's another side to this, which is the liberty principle is actually an even stronger prohibition on interference than it at first seems, because he doesn't just say, if it's self-regarding action, the state can't prohibit you. He says social forces and social conventions can't prohibit you, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's, What's meant by that second prohibition? Well, the second prohibition, um, so I'm not sure that the word convention is quite right there. Normative constraints other than um, legally imposed ones, say purely moral constraints, for example. Um, You might think that adultery is wrong but shouldn't be illegal, let's say. Um, Well... Um, does Mill want his liberty principle to cover these non-legal moral constraints? Yes, he does. He wants it to cover that as well, because he's very keen on um, the idea that there's this power of mass conformism in modern society, and you've got to do something to oppose it. So that would map on very well to, I mean, you mentioned adultery, maybe not adultery per se, but like non-conforming sex lives or sexual identities, in that, I mean, Mill was quite explicitly used in the decriminalization of homosexuality in the UK, right? And in, mm. in terms of what this means for us today, a lot of people will sort of have this view of like, well, if people want to be, you know, gay or whatever, they can do that, but I don't like it and I don't want to be near it. You'll hear people say something like that. Mm. Whereas to my reading, of, I don't know if this is what the historic Mill would have said, but this is sort of what my reading of it would be, was that he would want to push you further than that. He says, well, no, you, obviously you absolutely can't criminalise 
you know, consensual sex relations. But more than that, you can't just say, I hate it and I judge it and whatever. You don't have to participate in it, but you can't use that force of judgment or, like, social condescension or bullying or anything like that. You have to, you have to make your peace with this, in a sense. Well, I mean, quite concretely, I think in the case of homosexuality, you would say it is not morally wrong. Yeah. Nothing is morally wrong unless it harms others or one of the other two things I mentioned. Yeah. Um, And there is nothing like that. You know, a homosexual isn't homosexual activity among people um, is not harming others. Homosexuals aren't refusing to appear on juries. Right. Okay, if they do their stuff in, in public, uh, there might be an objection, but that applies equally to heterosexuals, right? Um, but homosexuality as such is not morally wrong. That would be what he'd have to say. The one, because I think homosexuality will be very intuitive for members of the left today, um, and correctly so. The one that might not be, and that he deals with explicitly in, on liberty, is polygamy. The same argument would map yes. onto that is he wouldn't just say it should be legal to have many wives or many husbands or whatever the case may be, but he would say it's not even wrong as long as it's consensual and everyone in that arrangement is happy with it. You've got no place within this theory to stand to to not not criminalize, but you've got no place within this theory even to judge any form of sexual relations that people might have as long as it's safe and consensual, right? Well, you can judge it as being permissible. Right. It's not that you... Right, okay. Judge that someone who thinks it's wrong is wrong and tell them that it's wrong. I mean, this is not a... It's just... I I want to emphasise that Mill is quite a sort of um, Victorian-style lapel holder he would come along to you and say look you're saying that homosexuality is wrong you are wrong right (laughs) he he wouldn't say well look you know i know that that's your opinion but let's leave that out shall we because i just want to decriminalize it Uh, he would want to change moral opinions we're coming up on time here but i want to circle back almost to where we started about human nature versus neutralism because this is what I like so much about Mill, and I honestly find a bit obnoxious about modern philosophical liberalism, is you sort of feel like John Rawls would say, well, and I haven't read Rawls in a while, but he would sort of say, like, well, you might think that about homosexuality, and you're entitled to think that, um, but understand that, you know, there's this political sphere where you have to put aside your personal moral judgments, whereas Mill would just want to say, well, no, but you're wrong. And he'd want to say that yeah. about a lot of things. And it's not like you're wrong politically, you're wrong point, morally. It's my obligation to point out to you that you are wrong. <laughs> because although I'm not going to put you in prison or stop you from you know, doing anything that isn't harming other people, actually, your opinion here, if it becomes too common in society, is going to harm people in a way that's unacceptable. It's going to infringe on their liberty, simply because of the power of... Um, you know, conformist opinion as against law. That's, and that's why I've got to stand up against it. That's such an important distinction. I think something that, like, modern libertarianism or neoliberalism misses is it's not just the government that can infringe your liberty. Your liberty to lead your own life, to choose your own life, to have a flourishing life, is, is affected by other people's moral views. Yes, it is. It is. Of course it is, Yes. Um, and that was, again, actually, that was a, not just Mill, but 19th century liberals in general were all scared to death of the power of public opinion. I mean, Tocqueville comes to mind, who right. wrote about democracy in America and the famous phrase, the tyranny of the majority. It's which comes from right. yeah. Yes. Uh, so that was a very common liberal fear. The other distinction that, that this calls to mind, and we're getting a little bit away from Mill, just like into my own views, is... If there's one philosophical distinction, and only one that I could impress on the modern left, it would be the distinction between pluralism and relativism. Because a lot of modern liberal thought seems to come from the idea of, we all have different views, who knows what's right, let's just try and all lead our own lives. Whereas that's not at all where Mill's coming from. He's coming from, there is a correct moral view, it's this, it's that people develop, and because 
self-development is most valuable. It is a morally good thing that society allow people to lead different lives. Not because we don't know what's good for people, but precisely because we actually do have some quite concrete ideas about what's well, good for people. There's, there's some truth of the matter as to what's good for people, and we're trying to find out what it is. Yes. It's not the case that, um, you know, when it comes to normative questions like that, it's all relative and it's a matter of opinion. Yeah. That's, that's, that you would certainly be opposed to that. And, of course, this, there is this – is it so common now as it used to be? I mean, it used to be absolutely maddening. I think somebody called it the anthropological fallacy. You know? Everybody – it's all just a matter of opinion. Therefore, we should be tolerant. <laughs> Classic case of deriving an objective judgment from a claim, from a relativistic claim. You know. But but you can't. That doesn't make any sense for two reasons. The first is liberalism is only like a neutral standard from within liberalism, right? The idea you lead your life and I lead mine. Well, if mm. your life involves, you know, you know, your your personal life it involves homosexuality say might be deeply offensive to me or, if, or you want to burn a Quran or something might be deeply mm. deeply the idea that you leave your life and you live mine that's a moral claim about the world and you can see that really clearly by just asking something like for all its faults was Churchill's England a better society than Hitler's Germany right mm -hmm. and the relativist if you're going to be a serious relativist has no leg to stand on to say Hitler's Germany was really worse. If it's all just different points of view, or, or North Korea, or, you know, pick your totalitarian well, state you. du I jour. Whereas yes. the pluralist... Well, there are lots and lots of... There's lots and lots of clever ways of playing that one. I mean, a, a clever relativist can be a very maddening fellow. I mean, I'm on your side, but... Um, I would think that he'd probably say, well, look, of course, the judgment that that um, uh, Churchill's Britain is better than Hitler's Germany is your judgment. And the judgment that there really is a truth to the matter is just another way of saying the same thing. Uh, but that, that just pushes so the can. So I'm not disagreeing with anything you say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that just pushes the can further down the road. Because, yes, it's my judgment that Churchill's England was better. I'm asking, well, not of you, but of the relativist, what's your judgment? Do you really feel like there is no moral difference there? Because if you're being honest, not about, like, your rational argument, but just about how you feel, you feel that there's a difference. And you can map this down to, like, suffering, to utilitarianism, to suffering is bad and happiness is good. And if you really, really, really doubt that, you're just invited to put your hand in a wood chipper. Like... At a certain level, common sense has to kick in, right? Well, if somebody thinks that it's a good thing to lose their fingers, then, of course, that's an opinion that's true relative to their framework. Um, no one or very, very, <laughs> very, very few relativism people. is very hard to catch people out on if they're clever enough. You, the only way to, to approach it, really, is to get much broader in one's philosophical discussion and you know, questions of epistemology come in here. I think I've got a wonderful metaphor for this, and we're coming up on time, so we want to yeah. close soon. But I think I'm getting this from Hume, and he uses this as a cash-out for not moral relativism, but like a profound scepticism, a sort of how-do-I-know-the-world's-even-really-here type yeah. thought. And he says, yeah, yeah, ultimately, yeah, you can't prove that it is, but let me ask you this. When you're crossing a busy street, do you look both ways? And mm. the person says, well, yes. And he says... Okay, so your philosophy, sir, is like a small wooden rocking horse that it is perfectly acceptable for a man to sit on in his study and spend an hour <laughs> or two whiling the time. Right. But should he attempt to ride it through the streets, he would rightly be thought mad. Right. And I think that kind of goes for moral relativism as well, right? Is yes, as a sort of interesting thing to play around with. But if you account, encounter yeah, yeah, a real yeah. injustice in the world and let's say you go into work and they say we're terminating all the female employees because we've decided that women can't work here anymore if you just go well that's your judgment you're complicit in that and i think even the relativists who really sort of want to go down this road would want to say something in that scenario and yes. so it's yeah. a rocking horse. You can rock on it in your study, but you can't ride it through the streets. You can't operationalize it in your life, I don't think. It's not plausible to go through the world really feeling that your points of view have no ultimate 
authority yeah. behind them, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, effectively, that's saying to the to the relativists, you don't really believe what you say you believe. I think that is what I'd want to say to relativists. Yeah, yeah, I know no, it's quite. a patronising thing to say, it's a, but... Absolutely, it's patronising, but it's correct. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to play it that way, if you want to try and refute them, then you're on much tougher ground. Yeah, but it's like, I've never heard a brilliant argument that we're not brains in a vat or in the Matrix. Like, we no, could no, be, no. but again, do you look both ways when you cross the street? Yeah. We're agreeing. We're okay. agreeing. Um, <laughs> no, that took a little bit of a tangent. We're coming up on exactly now. Is there any final words on, like, Mill generally that you'd want to leave us with? We've covered, like, actually a pretty good amount of terrain there. Um, any Any closing thoughts? Well, only to encourage people to read him, because he is the greatest English, British, possibly European, possibly Western liberal. Um, and, you know, he is very inspiring. So try it. Yeah, beautifully written stuff. And if you want a... Um, a I mean, On Liberty itself is not a long book. You can read it in a few hours. And mm. um, mm. if you want a good secondary text, uh, we will recommend your work and a link to it. Uh, Why <laughs> Read Mill Today. Any other resources you'd point listeners in the way of? Um, on Mill on Liberalism. Well, so uh, one thing that comes to mind is that uh, John Rawls has written on the, on Mill. You mentioned Rawls earlier. Quite interesting to hear one great to, to read one great liberal on another. That's somewhere in his uh, lectures on the history of philosophy. Uh, he, that may be a book. in that book. Sorry, as an aside, he accuses Mill, and I quote, of excessive eloquence, which I thought was a fascinating insight. Into oh, does Rawls. he? Yeah, I can't remember that. Right, excellent. No, no, he doesn't. Sorry, it's Rousseau. But anyway, he, there's one thinker. He says they're too eloquent. It distracts well, from the argument. What said about Mill? What did Nietzsche just... has these lists of people he really hates. They're a bit like sort of contemporary <laughs> newspaper colour supplements. You know, what are your favourite foods? What are your most hated philosophers? And Mill appears as one. And he, in each case, he gives a little statement as to why. So for Mill, it's Mill for his offensive clarity. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is brilliant. It is... <laughs> It is offensive. That is good, though, because there's a lot of... Yes. Where, ...where you get this sentence that's like a paragraph long, and you sort of, to the modern mind, you think he's just going all over the place. No, he's saying exactly what he means to say, and if there's like 12 exactly. sub-clauses, it's because that's how you want to qualify that statement. And he somehow fixes you in that way. You know, it's sort of... Yeah. Like somebody else said that, you know, reading on liberty, you get the sense of, of a kind of basilisk staring at you, yeah. insisting <laughs> that you listen. <laughs> uh, that's offensive clarity, too. So I think that's it. You know, you're, you're sort of pinned down and unable to go down your usual rat runs, you know, your usual equivocations and shortcuts. It's, yeah, and because if you're ever thinking, oh, but what about this? Don't worry, he's getting to that. And usually in the same sentence... <laughs> yeah. His offensive comprehensiveness, in fact. Yes. It's, <laughs> not, oh, it, not just clarity, but comprehensiveness. They're both offensive. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a very mature thinker that you get with the later mill in like he, he he's he's heard what's to be said against what he has to say, you know? I love it. Anyway. Yeah. Well, give you firebend. One last firebend, PK Firebend, who was in his time a very <laughs> popular and influential philosopher, uh, he said that the thing about Mill, what he admired about Mill was his, let's see, let's get this right, his sincerity, humanity, and decency. Mm. And actually, those are very good words to describe Mill. Yeah, it's very sincere. You do get the feeling that, that he's saying stuff because he really, especially like the subjugation of women and so on, he's saying it because mm. he thinks it, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll pause it there. <laughs> Professor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe on iTunes or Twitter or Facebook. We even have a YouTube page. Links to all of that are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com politicalphilosophypodcast.com and if you're really liking the show and you've seen a few episodes and you want to help us grow 
two things you can do to, to be part of bringing these conversations to a wider audience. Share them on your own social media or forward them to friends. Um, and if you're able, we suggest a donation of $2 an episode to help cover the hosting costs, equipment, stuff like that. And that's really easy to do on Patreon. Links are on the website. To everyone who has shared and to everyone who has donated, huge, huge thank you. We're getting this show out now to thousands of people, and that's, like, mind-blowing. And, I, you know, it's, it's, it's so simple, just, like, a few clicks, but, like, a bunch of people doing that has really grown this. So I'm really grateful to all of you. Much more in the way of updates next week. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>